scripture reading this morning is going to be in the book of Mark. The end of chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. As you turn there, uh, I would ask that you keep this picture of a widow in mind as we go to 1 Timothy in just a few moments as an example of the type of person that I think Paul is talking about. Mark chapter 12, starting verse 41. It says, And he sat down opposite the treasury, he being Jesus, and watched the people putting money into the offering box. And many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Father, I ask that you would bless us as we focus on your word. I pray that you would remove all distractions, remove all bias and prejudice, and I pray that with meekness we would receive your word. I ask that you would help us to understand it, to rejoice in it, and to obey it, and to find blessing through it. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to turn now to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. I want to mention at the beginning of this message where I think Jesus is in this passage. It would be easy to read through it and to talk about God's heart for not only providing for widows and orphans, uh, but also his heart for excellence in church ministry and for purity in the lives of believers. And yet at this stage in the book, Paul is addressing Christians who have believed the gospel and he's giving them instructions on how to conduct their ministry. So if I focus with rapt attention on these verses, it might be possible to leave the gospel out of this message, and I never want to do that. So I want to say from the beginning, very clearly, that everything Paul commands the church to do here is based on what Christ has done for us. There are many charitable organizations in the world, but there's only one church of Jesus Christ. And the difference is, the good works that the Lord commands His people to do are not so that we could earn the favor of God, or that so we could somehow balance out our sins, that can't be done. Rather, 
God's heart for meeting the needs of orphans and widows and God's heart for his people to do good works comes after we have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ from our own sins. You say, where do you see that in the text? Well, I see it in chapter 1, but I'm not preaching through chapter 1. Not today. Paul has already encouraged Timothy to be faithful to the gospel that creates the church. When guilty sinners hear the good news that God loves us in our sin before we've changed it all. And he has made a way for us to be washed and cleansed and forgiven. And then he has called us to a life of obedience in the church so that the world has a living example of what Jesus is like. So as he saves guilty sinners, he changes them and rescues them so that they are no longer slaves to the sin they once loved, but instead more and more find joy in obeying the commands of God and find joy in being more and more like God. So if you were to ask the question, where is Jesus in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 9-16? through 16, I believe Jesus has redeemed sinners and he is calling them to meet the needs of those who cannot meet their own needs, which is a perfect reflection of the heart of the Father. Psalm 68.5 praises the God of the Old Testament as the father of the fatherless and protector of widows. And James 1.27, written to Christians in the New Testament, says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So where is Jesus in this text? Jesus is taking forgiven sinners and working his heart of love and compassion through the hands and feet of the church to bless those, especially in the church, who no longer are able to provide for themselves. It's critical to understand that because if we focus on these verses and forget the gospel, we may err in one of two ways. We may miss the clear call for holiness for God's people, or we may mistakenly apply this instruction for widows to areas that God does not intend for it to be applied. And I want to guard against either of those extremes, where on the one case, we would forget his instructions to have a heart for holiness, and yet on the other hand, we may forget his instructions to be generous and compassionate. And so I've got three points today as we go through this passage, understanding the grace of God that forgives us, that cleanses us, and then motivates us to do good works, beginning with widows that we should help. So I want to encourage you to look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 9 and 10 with me. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Paul says, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, 
and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Now, if you read that list, you might think, man, this is going to be the easiest ministry in the world to run because who fits that description? Paul's purpose is not to say that we should only help those who are perfectly sinless. Instead, he is describing a type of ministry that is a lifelong commitment to meet the material needs of a woman who has demonstrated such godliness. She is no longer able to provide for herself, and so the church has an obligation to care for her needs. And I want to be clear about a couple of things that I think are confusing in this passage that help us understand it a little bit. And the first one is this. You may remember for both elders and deacons in chapter 3, there's this qualification of being a one-woman man. And when I talked about that, I said, well, this verse does not teach that if your spouse dies and you remarry, you are no longer qualified to lead in the church. And I mentioned Pastor Jack, who I believe would still be qualified to serve in ministry, even though his first wife passed away and he remarried. When it says a one-woman man in chapter 3, I believe what it's saying is faithful to your spouse. Faithful to your spouse. That's how the church has historically understood that text. And I believe, just like in chapter 3, where it's completely possible to serve in leadership as an unmarried man, it's also possible that in chapter 5, the exact same phrase but applied to a woman, a one-man woman, is not intended to exclude women who have never married. Instead, this phrase is showing a type of purity for either a married woman or a single woman that says her faithfulness to God in her own private life matters deeply before the church commits to support her. Now, I do want to pause and say, look, the church is a hospital for sinners. It's not a country club for saints. So this is not intended to say, you know, if someone has sin in your life, you just close your wallet and say, sorry, I can't help you. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about someone who has served the church faithfully and is eligible for something beyond a type of compassionate donation. This is not benevolence ministry. This is a lifelong pension, really. And so the standard is different, and the standard is higher. Your private morality matters. Paul, in this passage, is going to encourage younger widows to remarry, And if he encourages them to marry, I do not believe for a moment, should their second husband die, they will then be disqualified from being provided for, even if they have the character requirements that he's outlining here. So from within the passage, the words themselves imply something different than simply only ever having had one husband. And his instructions regarding their remarriage make it clear that he believes marriage is a good thing, 
And so I want to be careful how I read this to say it's possible that we absolutely should support those who have simply never married. Not only that, I also want to make it clear that the standards for morality as we look to help those within our church have to be maintained in our own day. Now, what do I mean by that? There are a couple of things that are going to become clear in the next point where Paul describes widows that the church should not support. But what I want to stress before we go there is that the church does not want to fund ungodly people for life so that they would, in a sense, be subsidizing sin. Now, I think everyone agrees you don't want to be an enabler. That's the, that's the popular word that we use to describe, you know, how, how do you support and love someone who is maybe in the, the chains of addiction? You don't want to just continue to give money to an addict. That would enable a destructive and harmful lifestyle. And I believe what he's describing here is the next logical step. If you understand you don't want to enable someone with an addiction, then recognize the potential dangers of providing for someone that lacks godly character who has not had a reputation for faithfully serving within the church. And to be clear about what I mean by that, we need to look at Paul's warning and notice the type of widows that he says we should not support with one important caveat. I almost want to pause before we read these verses. Paul is not picking on women as somehow more sinful than men. Okay, He's going to say some things. He's going to mention gossip. Gossip is a problem for men frequently. And Paul is not naive, and he is not thinking that women only commit these sins. He's just writing in the context of a ministry that's focused on the needs of elderly women who have no other means of financial support. So, guys, I'm going to pick on you as we go through this as well, but I want to say that before we even read these verses. Now, notice with me verses 11 and 12. Paul says, But refuse to enroll younger widows... For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossip and busybodies saying what they should not. So, I would have younger widows marry bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. Now, it's completely possible after reading these verses that in our modern context, we immediately jump to all kinds of crazy conclusions. We might wonder, and I think with good reasons, okay, so what about a woman, maybe she does remarry and she can't have children. Is Paul saying that She's somehow not as good of a Christian as a Christian mom? No, he's not. And we want to be really, really careful forcing the Bible to say things that it does not say and assuming a sort of misogynistic bias that I don't believe is there. I believe what he is saying is that God's original creation is very, very good, 
even in a broken and a fallen world, it is good for men and women to marry, and it is good to have children. Children are a blessing from the Lord. And so Paul is not in any way saying, this is all you're good for, not in a million years. Instead, he wants them to enjoy the blessings that God intends for us. Now, we might immediately think of all kinds of scenarios where perhaps a woman can't remarry, or perhaps even after remarriage, they're no longer able to have children for whatever reason. And in one sense, they will miss out on a blessing from the Lord. Does that mean that they're not qualified to serve in ministry? And I want to say two things about that. First, in one sense, yes, we do miss out on blessings from the Lord when God calls some of us to singleness and when God withholds the blessing of children from others. That's, that's a real loss. And many people grieve that loss. And when you find someone in that kind of grief, we need to comfort them in that grief. But number two, I also want to stress that there are many godly women who have never married, who have never been able to have children, or godly women who have married and not been able to have children of their own, who have faithfully loved and mothered those that are not biologically related to them, but instead, perhaps through the ministry of the church or perhaps through their professional work, they have functioned as godly mothers again and again and again to people outside their family. And in fact, I believe that in a real way, that demonstrates the love of Christ in a deeper way. And you might say, how is that? Because when you lack a physical bond for someone, and yet step in and function as a godly mother anyway, you have none of the maternal instincts, you miss out on the, oh, isn't she cute and she's related to me, and yet you step in and do something that is beautiful and self-sacrificing and loving in a deep and a motherly way for people that you're not related to. When you function as a godly mother to someone who is not literally your biological son or daughter, I believe you're showing the heart of Christ in a way that is more self-sacrificing than when you do have a natural bond and enjoy all of the benefits of physical motherhood. And so, yes, there is a sense in which there's a real loss. I believe there's also a sense when the heart of Jesus to make all of us family is illustrated more clearly when we're not literally family. One of the commentaries I was reading talked about a, a missionary context where traditionally those who lost their husbands very often would live an isolated life and starve themselves to death because they believed that they had no worth or value or hope in the community. There was no means to work or provide for themselves. So what would normally happen when a woman's husband died in this culture is she would go into her house and sit alone and just wait for herself to die. And when the missionary preached through this passage, their community had really struggled as some had believed in Christ 
And that faith immediately invited opposition within the community because every time you try to follow Christ, you're turning away from something. And very often, the people that you used to love and call family are not okay with your new devotion to Jesus. And that had happened here, and there was a small, growing family of of committed believers, and one of those women had just lost her husband. And when the missionary finished preaching this passage, a man walked up to her, and said, you are our family now. You live with us. We will give you everything you need. And he personally committed to meeting all of this woman's needs in a lived out illustration of exactly what this passage is talking about. So that even though she was not physically related to him, he functioned as a son to her. And when the body of Christ functions like family, we demonstrate to a watching world that Jesus is among us, that God is our Father, that we are all brothers and sisters here. So the point of saying that there are some that you should not help becomes very difficult to wrestle with. What does it say when you look at the command Perhaps you should not help someone who is going to become idle, who will go to house to house and gossip. What does he say when he warns that it's possible that these women will abandon their former faith? Well, there are a couple of things that I think are really important in these verses. And the first thing I wanted to stress is that it's good if it's possible for a woman to marry so that she enjoys the blessings that God designed into creation. What happens if a woman cannot marry? Or what happens in our cultural context when it simply doesn't make sense? There's not as much of a financial need or incentive today, although there is some. How do we handle this command to refuse to enroll younger widows? And what about the things that Paul warns? Well, there are a couple of things that I want to say very clearly. First. His warning is universally applicable to men and women concerning the dangers of idleness and the dangers of being led away by your desires, even if your desires are good. I'm going to say that again. His his warning against idleness and his warning against being led away by your desires is universally applicable to both men and women even when your desires are good. Paul says that these young ladies, when their passions draw them away from Christ and they desire to marry, they will incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. The thing that's in view here is forsaking Christ for the sake of marrying a non-believer. And you might say, okay, I know Christians who have married non-believers, men and women. Is that some sort of unforgivable sin? And I think the answer to that is no. But what he has in view here is when you would marry someone in this time, you would necessarily publicly embrace their gods. So there is a real sense in which denying Christ is part of embracing a non-believing spouse in this cultural context. We don't do that in the same way today. So I can remind you of things that Jesus said, like, 
If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. Those are the words of Jesus. He makes that clear. If your marriage to a non-believer involves that sort of public denial of Christ, there is a real danger that you are demonstrating with your life choices that you do not trust Jesus as your Savior. Instead, you are trusting your personal happiness to a man or to a marriage and that you will do anything for temporary happiness even if it involves forsaking Christ. And I believe Paul's warning that they will incur condemnation is just that. That their actions will demonstrate their faith was nothing more than temporary lip service. And I believe that warning is a valid warning for us as well. All of us are tempted towards various sins. The Bible warns that some will turn away from Christ. In fact, in the same church that Paul is writing to young Timothy, to the church of Ephesus, Paul warns, he says that from among yourselves, there will rise up wolves that will ravage the flock, that from within there is danger that people will forsake Christ. And so I want to warn all of us that this temptation to meet our own desires apart from Christ is a real temptation for men and women. And Paul says that the way that this happens is partly through idleness. We don't talk a lot about idleness. We are a people that we love leisure. And there is a good reason for, for enjoying biblical rest, but often our leisure moves far beyond biblical rest and becomes a place where our desires can be warped and twisted and led into sinful ways that ultimately may drive us away from Christ. I think passively scrolling on your phone and passively watching television are more spiritually dangerous than most people realize. It may seem harmless for a while, but if you track their influence on your life over time, you can discover that it will change you as a person. Christ may be less precious to you as you aimlessly idle through content that someone else has chosen to tempt you with. I was reading about two weeks ago, the Wall Street Journal has done a really fantastic series on both Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. And I'm not going to go off on a crazy social media tangent here, although I think it is worthwhile for us to all think about what Facebook does to us. I'm just going to mention briefly what TikTok does. Because the way that the journal conducted this study is they created about 100 accounts and they gave each count, account one or two particular interests when they set up the account. And the only way that TikTok had any idea what these accounts valued is in terms of how long it would pause when it scrolled past a particular content. And the title of the article was How TikTok Promotes Drugs and Sex to Young People. Um, and the Wall Street Journal, not James Dobson or some crazy conservative, but the Wall Street Journal said the way that it did it is it would notice if you paused on anything and it would automatically feed you something similar so that within 15 minutes, you could go from looking at fun, goofy videos of a dog dancing 
to some of the most terrifying, ugliest content imaginable on the internet. And I'm not even going to tell you some of the stuff it described. It was so disturbing. One of the things that that demonstrates is that the human heart has not changed at all. That passively being idle will take all of us to dark places. I will mention one thing in particular, because this surprised me a little bit, that TikTok has no ability to screen content away from self-harm. So one of the accounts that they set up was simply labeled sad. And as it was scrolling past content, it would look at people walking in the rain in black and white, because that looks and feels kind of sad. And occasionally, TikTok would suggest, oh, maybe you've been through a breakup. So it would throw in a couple of videos where people are talking about their ex, or they're talking about moving on. And they programmed this little account to not pay any attention to those things. This isn't a romance thing. I just feel sad. And so as people continued scrolling past little videos, Within about 15 or 20 minutes, they began to find videos that were talking about things like, I just, I feel better when I act out on my sad, on my body. And so they were moving people to a place where they considered physical self-harm. And it started with just idly scrolling mindlessly and finding a perverse mirror image of some of the darkest portions of your own heart. And guys, I believe that one of the universal applications of this passage is that we have to take the dangers of idleness in our own lives seriously. It is possible to move from a place where you're a happy Christian trusting in Jesus to a very dark, depressed person Not because you've committed any terrible grave sin, but because you've opened your heart up to evil influences simply by doing nothing. See, Paul presents two opposite pictures in this text. The one is of a godly woman who is busy serving the Lord by meeting the needs of the church. And the other is of a godless woman who simply feeds her own indulgences and goes around and becomes a gossip. Now, I mentioned before, in this context, he's focused on women because the ministry that they're talking about is focused on women. Men have the same temptations to idleness. And so I want to say one of the ways that we need to apply this passage is be warned that your idleness can lead you away from Christ. Jesus really does say things, and he's not just talking to women. He says things, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. Now, before I go any further, I want to give some hope in that context, because I want to remind you of Peter. Peter is an apostle. He was someone who loved the Lord Jesus deeply, and he's also very famous for denying the Lord Jesus publicly. And I want to mention him because... You might ask yourself, you know what? I know that I've willfully sinned and I've willfully disobeyed the Lord and there are some dark places in my heart. Is it too late? Is there there any hope? And here's what I want to say to you. There is a difference between a momentary denial and a permanent turning away from Christ. 
Peter did publicly deny the Lord. And you know what? The Lord in his grace and his mercy forgave him. So if you have a heart to seek the forgiveness of the Lord, I believe there's hope. You're not done. The danger in this type of destructive idleness is a danger that would lead you to a place where you no longer have a heart to even ask for forgiveness. And so I want to say to you today, before it's too late, repent of that kind of dangerous idleness. Be honest enough with yourself to do a heart check before you crash on the couch and watch TV. What am I doing right now? Are there things that I should do that I'm leaving undone? Why am I here? What am I about to watch? Am I actively choosing to engage with something that will educate me or strengthen my faith? Or am I just looking for something to kill time? Because if you choose to just kill time, eventually you will find that that time will kill you. You will lead yourself to a place where the hope of Jesus no longer seems real. And so I want to urge you, recognize the danger of pursuing your desire with no regard for holiness. Recognize that we need to assess our hearts not just once a month at communion, but every time we turn on our phones or we turn on our TVs, every time we choose to do something or nothing, we are having an opportunity to follow Christ or to be negligent. And so, as Timothy is getting instructions for who he should help, Paul says, don't deliberately create an environment where people can turn away from Christ. Don't subsidize idleness. Instead, encourage godliness and blessing. Paul teaches that marriage is a good thing. He's not condemning those who are single and he's not condemning those who are childless. He's saying, use your time well. So men, women, if you're single and you don't have the the time commitment of family, make sure that you fill your time with worthwhile things. The Lord has given each of us different gifts. There's a wide array of good things that we can pursue. Maybe it's a career, maybe it's art, maybe it's music. Maybe it is building godly relationships. You say, man, I don't know what to do with my time as a person. You know know what you can do? You can look for a godly person to spend time with who will help shape and mold you. Look for someone with gray hairs who loves Jesus, and your time with them will be far better spent than any time on social media. Maybe you should think through When you do choose to spend a little time on Facebook or when you do choose to spend a little time on Instagram, how can you build a personal relationship with someone rather than just an impersonal non-relationship with hundreds of people? How can you go deeper in the faith with a godly person rather than just being passive and doing nothing but entertaining yourself? I believe... These are things that the modern church must wrestle with. Even though our environment is somewhat different, idleness is perhaps more of a danger for the church than it ever has been. And with a passage that so clearly condemns it, I believe we must carefully understand how to apply these verses to each of us. Paul's heart is not to say no to people that have a genuine need. 
His heart is to protect the souls of those who are part of the church and to provide for those who do have a genuine need. So he encourages women to pursue the godliness of marriage, and if that's not possible, to pursue good works and godly activities. And he ends this with another possibility for someone that that maybe doesn't have the burden of children and encourages the church needs to be freed for good ministry. So look with me at verse 16. Verse 16. Paul says, If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Paul's heart for the church is that it would minister faithfully and well to any woman who is truly in need, but one of the things that we should do with our time and our money is we should personally care for those who don't qualify for this list. Paul is saying, if you have a relative, your obligation is to meet that need. And if you know of someone, perhaps who is not your relative, you have an opportunity to meet that need so that the church is not burdened and can focus on those who truly have no other means of support. Friends, there are a couple of things from this passage that is honestly somewhat difficult to apply because our situation is somewhat different. If you remember my message from last week, there are direct commands that never change, and then there are situational commands, and we have to look for a direct principle that will still apply and then understand how it will apply to us. And I want to end this message giving you a couple of principles that I think come straight from the text that apply to us today. Number one is the goodness of hard work. The goodness of hard work. Paul harshly condemns idleness, not because he hates having a good time. In fact, his desire is for us to have a better time than we could ever imagine. But instead... His desire is so that we would be self-sacrificing and able to serve others. In Ephesians 4, he puts it this way. He says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. And I think many of us would say, so he can provide for himself. We love the culture that says, I'm a self-made person. And yet, The reason that Paul advocates hard work is actually so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Paul is advocating hard work for men and women so that we are able to be generous with others. I began this message asking, where is Jesus in this text? That is the heart of Jesus. To work not for yourself, but to work so that you are able to meet the needs of the people around you. So number one, what is a universal application of this text? The goodness of God-given work for the sake of being generous. In one sense, we should hope to die broke. Because it means we have given away the things God has given to us to, an, to other people who are in need. Now, is there good in leaving an inheritance for your kids? Absolutely. 
Use the wisdom of the Lord to know how much your kids need and how much you should give away. But I think the heart of Scripture says, if your goal is to collect stuff, to tear down your barns and build bigger ones, Jesus says that is a foolish mentality. But instead, to recognize Jesus can come back any minute. I don't want to be hanging on to my junk. I want to make sure that I've given it all for the Lord. So the Bible teaches good work, not to, to hard work, not to please ourselves and to build our own personal wealth, but instead to bless those who have a need to be generous. Not only that, next, this principle comes from last week's message, but it's still on the same topic. Honoring those who cared for you is pleasing to God. Honoring those who cared for you is pleasing to God. It it comes back in verse 16 in this passage where it says, Any believing woman who has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. In last week's passage, it says, Children and grandchildren are to especially care for those who have no other means of support. And that is their first obligation before the church is ever asked to help them. If you have a family member, it pleases God for you to meet their needs and to repay some of the debt that you owe them because they cared for you. Failure to care for family is a denial of the faith. That's insanely strong language. But if you realize that God says that the first commandment is to obey and worship the Lord, And that the fifth commandment is to honor your father and mother. It makes good sense that you are honoring your father and mother because they are the image of God to you. They brought you into the world. Without them, you would not exist. So you don't worship them, but you do recognize a godly obligation to care for them. And you can't neglect that without disobeying the God that you worship in the first commandment. Not only that, friends, I believe that it is important that not only as a church, but also individuals, we must be discerning and careful for what we support. We must be discerning and careful for what we support. Due diligence before you decide that you will give money to something. And I'll give one example. Um, I am very unapologetically pro-life. I believe that it is not only Christian, but it is morally right to protect the unborn. And yet, many charities that will immediately ask you for money, hey, would you make a donation to such and such? And this happened to us just a couple of weeks ago. And the gut reaction is to say, yeah, I'll give to that. Who's going to say no? Because the marketing of every charity is to, you know, put a starving, crying child on a picture and be like, don't you want to help this person? And anybody with a heart says yes. But I believe this passage calls us to a kind of careful discernment so that if you know that an organization that markets itself as compassionately fighting a terrible disease, but if you're aware that they take some of that money and they fund abortions, you shouldn't give to it. I believe we need to have discernment in what we support individually and as a church. And I think this passage demonstrates that sometimes giving money to someone can be very destructive. So friends, be discerning and be careful 
with what you support personally and let us pray for discernment and wisdom as a church with what we support in our missions and ministries. I've already mentioned idleness, but as I close, I want to remind you again, beware of idleness. You say, I don't know what to do instead. What am I supposed to do? Well, there are about a million things that you can do. Paul mentions good works in particular. We have opportunities to serve here, whether it's at Forgotten Harvest on the first and third Friday of the month, or whether it's occasionally helping with our pantry throughout the week, or whether it's volunteering with our children's ministries and youth ministries, or whether it's just committing yourself to growing deeper in your faith and learning more about the Word. If you want to come to an adult study, if you want personal disciples, Call me this week. I'll either make time for you or connect you with someone who will. But there are a million and one things that the Lord commands us to do to be devoted to good works. Friends, let's be warned and careful of our idleness. Let's recognize the spiritual danger of doing nothing. Let's recognize the goodness of serving children. Let's recognize the goodness of serving children. And as I close, I want to ask that we would have great care to recognize the gospel of Jesus motivates us to good works. Throughout this message, I've kind of gone back to the question of where is Jesus in this text? And I began by saying, Jesus is the God who has a heart for widows and orphans. He is meeting the needs of those who cannot meet themselves, and he does it through the hands and feet of our local church. So as I close, I want to remind you, not only of James that says it's true religion to meet widows and orphans in distress, but James who also says this, that faith without works is dead. We have an obligation to put our faith in action. Because if we have received the grace of Jesus, if our sins are forgiven and we've been given new life, Jesus says that ought to come bubbling out of us like a living spring that blesses the people around us. It ought to make us generous financially and with our time. It ought to change us. And so friends, as I close this message, I want to remind you of the free grace of Jesus, that he really does love you that much, that he really does forgive your sins, and also ask you this question. If you've received the grace of Jesus, what are you doing with it Monday through Saturday from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed? Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would teach us to be faithful in meeting the needs of the most vulnerable, of the most needy within our church. I ask that you would use all of our members to provide fellowship and godly encouragement so that no one in our church is ever lonely. Father, so many people are. I ask for your forgiveness and help in meeting those needs. Lord, I pray that you would make us a generous and hardworking people and that we would have no sense of pride in ourselves and what we've done, but instead we would point back to you and celebrate your grace that has taught us to be gracious. Make us just like Jesus in every way. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.